Well, good morning, church. Um, we're jumping right into this passage. We came just a few weeks ago in our study of John's gospel to the time for the Passover feast. And that's going to prove to be uh, significant to the details surrounding the events that Ariana just read for us. Uh, concerning this moment in history that we've been considering for the last few weeks, Charles Ross called it the inner sanctuary of John's gospel. Next week, Josh is going to lead us through uh, verses 31 through the end of the chapter. And in verse 31, Jesus is going to say to his disciples, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And that's why some scholars talk about there being two books in John's gospel, the book of signs and the book of glory. What we see in the structure of the story is that Jesus has now effectively concluded his public ministry where he performed many signs and wonders which were intended to validate his claims to be the Messiah. And then uh, at the beginning of chapter 13, we see John zoom way in and slow the story down significantly. There's a change of place and a change of pace in the storytelling. We go from a, a three-year public ministry to a several hours long private conversation in which nearly all of the details of what Jesus taught in that upper room are recorded. In fact, the next five chapters, including chapter 13, couldn't have taken up more space than about five hours of Jesus's life. So uh, we just concluded 12 chapters worth of stories dedicated to three years of public ministry, but now we're going to spend five chapters just focused on the things that Jesus did and said, the things that he taught in this room with his disciples as they celebrated the Passover. And then in chapters 18 and 19, Jesus will be betrayed and killed, making atonement for the sins of all who would believe in him. And then in chapters 20 and 21, he's resurrected, meets with his followers, restores a doubter and a denier, and John ends the letter by telling us why he wrote the book which is so that we, his readers, could believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we may have life in Jesus' name. And then John says that he was the one who asked Jesus, this is at the very end of the book, John says he was the one who asked Jesus who would betray him during the Last Supper, which is our passage today, and then that's the end of John's gospel. We see in the story today that John doesn't call himself by name, which I think is interesting. He's just like, in verse 23, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. See he, see, he doesn't want to distract from what's going on. John's not the main character in the story here, but he loves Jesus. And more than anything else, when John is remembered, he wants people to remember that Jesus loved him. The goodness of being loved by Jesus, being close to him, in relationship with him, is literally the crowning reality that John wants to be remembered for, even more than his own name. I wonder if any of us could say that the most important thing for us 
what we want to be our epitaph, the thing we want to be remembered for when we're gone from this earth, was that Jesus loved us. I think the more time we spend with Jesus in this life, the more likely that would be a reality for us like it was for John. Just some food for thought. Uh, We are going to get into the meat of this passage in just a moment, but uh, one other thing that stood out to me about it more generally that I wanted to highlight, and that's the placement of this story in the context of Jesus humbly serving his disciples by washing their feet and then coming right afterward, teaching them with like these incredible messages in chapter 14 and following. But here at the end of chapter 13, there's the prophecy of Judas' betrayal and the prophecy of Peter's denial of Jesus. And we said scholars call this the book of glory, but it's starting out pretty dark. I mean, verse 30 actually says, it was night. Talk about setting the mood. Here's why that stands out to me. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson said, the brightness of the glory is set against the black backdrop of betrayal and denial. I have this uh, image in my mind of a jeweler bringing out a fine diamond. They're going to put that beautiful diamond down on a, a black felt cloth so that the radiance of the stone will show through even more clearly against the stark contrast of the dark background. All of that to say, uh, these next chapters will be really significant. And the glory of Christ will shine all the more against the dark backdrop of the events that we're looking at this week and next. And we would all do well, as the old song says, to heed these words and hold them dear. So with that, let's dig in and meet Judas, okay? We're going to deal with this Judas guy. Uh, John's already set us up for this story. Back in chapter 12, verses 4 through 6, and I don't think I have this on the screen, so in your Bibles, you you may want to turn there, just a page back, Uh, John 12, verses 4 through 6, Mary has anointed Jesus with expensive ointment. And Judas complains about her doing that. And John lets us know that when he first mentions Judas, Matthew does this too. Like, it's like they can't say Judas' name without saying he was about to betray Jesus, right? Like a little bit of a, sore, a, little bit of a wound there, right? Um, but so John lets us know when he first mentions Judas that Judas was about to betray Jesus. And then we find out that Judas used to steal from the money bag. John says he didn't care about the poor. He was a thief. He loved money. And in fact, Matthew's gospel tells us that Judas went to the chief priests and actually said, what will you give me if I deliver him, Jesus, over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. Like he, he literally loved money and sold Jesus out for money. Now, the fact is that we don't know exactly why Judas decided to betray Jesus. There are several good theories, and uh, I'd be happy to talk to you some other time about the one I think is most probable, or at least most interesting. Uh, But the Bible doesn't tell us exactly why Judas betrayed Jesus, and so I think it's safe to assume we don't need to know. Uh, What we do know is that Judas 
spent a lot of time with Jesus. He was the ministry's finance guy, and he was doing a good job of hiding whatever it was that he had against the Lord. In our text today, back over in verse, uh, chapter 13, verses 28 and 29 tell us that when Jesus tells Judas to go ahead and get on with the betrayal, what you're going to do, do quickly, he says. Um, the, the disciples don't assume that Judas is the betrayer that he's just mentioned. They think he's talking about going to the grocery store or making a donation at a homeless shelter, but certainly not selling out Jesus. Even the way that Peter has John ask Jesus who Jesus is talking about when he predicts the betrayal tells us that, that Peter, John, they had no clue who it was. So Judas was doing a pretty good job of hiding whatever it was that he had against Jesus. And there's a huge resounding warning in that story. Uh, I've already quoted him once, and I, I will a couple more times. I, I benefited greatly from listening to the Scottish theologian Sinclair Ferguson on this passage, and so I'll be quoting him a couple more times today, but uh, talking about the inherent warning in this passage, he called it the difference between professional faith and profession of faith that produces undying commitment to Jesus. The difference between professional faith and profession of faith that produces undying commitment to Jesus. The, the warning is this, that just doing churchy things, even things like reading your Bible, praying, giving to the poor, preaching, singing, teaching a kid's class, these aren't enough to protect you from making a cataclysmic wreck of your soul. Judas spent so much time with Jesus, and still he fell utterly and miserably. Uh, in, in, in thinking about that fall, let's go ahead and deal with this business of Satan entering into Judas in verse 27. There is, an, uh, there is absolutely an undeniable biblical reality of supernatural forces at work in our world. And Satan is understood to personify the adversary of God, the devil, the tempter, the deceiver, the father of lies. Let's clear something up, though. Uh, when you and I sinned this past week, and we all did, the devil did not make you do it. He isn't an equal opposite of God. He's not omnipresent or omnipotent the way that God is. And trust me, since he can't be in all places at once like God can, Satan has bigger fish to fry than any of us. James 1.14 says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So if, if we're giving into temptation to sin, if you're sinning, it's likely not because some evil force is making you do something against your will. It's because you're doing what you want and you want to sin, period. It's that simple. The forces of darkness don't have to make us do anything. They simply exploit the parts of our heart and mind that we leave unguarded. James 4, 7 says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Like, what, a, what an amazing promise and power we have by the Spirit that if we resist the devil, he will flee from us. But what that tells me is that 
there was something in Judas that didn't want to resist the devil. And that when we sin, there's something in us that doesn't want to resist the temptation. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Praise God. Sinclair Ferguson said that Judas was taken hold of by Satan only because there was something in his heart to take hold of. I think that's a really key observation. If our hearts and minds are wholly given to the lordship of King Jesus, then there's nothing for the deceiver to work with or to take over. It's not like Satan has any power or authority over Jesus. This chapter makes it perfectly clear that Jesus is stronger than Satan. And he's stronger than all things for that matter. Jesus said in verse 18 that he knew those whom he had chosen. And then he tells Judas to go do what he's going to do. Jesus isn't unaware or powerless in this situation. He's allowing and even directing it. Jesus went to the cross as a matter of his own divine choice and preordained plans. The book of Job tells us that no plan of God's can be thwarted. So there's something inside Judas that he was holding on to, hiding it from everyone instead of giving it over to Jesus and seeking forgiveness. And that is where the enemy finds a foothold. Satan can't take anything from Jesus, so just give everything to Jesus is the message. It's a sound investment strategy. Your heart is safe with Jesus. But the enemy of our souls wants only our destruction. Don't leave the door open to temptation. Remember, Judas is a thief. He desperately needs to confess this offense and I'm sure there were others, but we know about that one. He needs to confess this to Jesus. And 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Judas needs to get it off his chest, but he won't come clean. He shows his lack of repentance, that he doesn't truly have faith in Jesus' ability to deliver him. You might say that Judas had seen all the signs, but still rejected Jesus as the true Messiah, which may explain why he was willing to turn him into the chief priests. He was looking for the Messiah, but his sin had so clouded his judgment that he couldn't see Jesus for who he really was. At any rate, uh, there was this unsurrendered part of Judas, which Satan took hold of. And eventually, the weight of Judas's inner secret self became such a controlling factor that he would rather destroy Jesus than confess his secret sin against Jesus and be healed. Even after Jesus is betrayed, Judas changes his mind. He brings the money back, but not because he has faith in Jesus as the Messiah. Matthew 27 tells us that Judas felt guilty for sinning, by betraying innocent blood. See, even then, he's willing to admit that Jesus is a good man and that he shouldn't have sold him out. But he's not willing to say that Jesus is the king and the Messiah. And then Judas, after Jesus 
is betrayed and Satan is done with him, done using him, Judas goes and hangs himself. Nothing to hope for because Jesus had not been his hope and stay. And next week we'll talk about someone else who turned their back on Jesus but was restored because ultimately underpinning Peter's life and heart was a trust in Jesus as the Messiah. And we get to juxtapose those two, those two men. Let's talk about an important seeming paradox in the story. Judas doesn't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But in accurately predicting Judas's betrayal, literally as fulfillment of messianic prophecy in verse 18, Jesus gives yet another proof to support his claims to be the Messiah. Paul wrote in uh, 1 Timothy 4, 1, through 1 and 2, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. And so now we get to ask the question, how did Judas spend so much time with Jesus and yet betray him? Listen, listen, friends. Sin has an effect on our consciences that is like a hot iron. The more we touch that iron of sin to our conscience, the more dead our spiritual nervous system becomes to the searing effect. The impact is that the more we sin, the easier it becomes to sin because we don't feel as bad when we do it. One last quote from Sinclair Ferguson, and this is something I want you to, to take away from Judas's story today. Ferguson said, anything which takes the place of total love and commitment for Jesus our Lord, unless it be confessed and mastered, has all the power in the world to destroy my love relationship with Jesus and eventually to destroy me spiritually. I'm going to read that again. Anything which takes the place of total love and commitment for Jesus, unless it be confessed and mastered, has all the power in the world to destroy my love relationship with Jesus and eventually to destroy me spiritually. So in closing... Uh, I want us to consider three types of disciples that we notice in the story. The conspirator, the confidants, and the close-ish friends. You have to give me close-ish because it was so close to an alliteration. Uh, conspirator, confidants, and close-ish friends. We've, we've been talking most of the time today about the conspirator. And maybe as we've been talking about Judas you're feeling a growing conviction about a secret sin that you haven't confessed to the Lord. In truth, you're not hiding anything from Him. He knows everything already. You're really only lying to yourself. But still, you might feel the tug of the Spirit on your conscience telling you that there is, in fact, something or some things in your life that take the place of total love and commitment for Jesus. Or maybe the thing that scares you as a contrast to that is that you don't feel a conviction. You've gotten so used to some habitual sin that it doesn't even sting anymore when you give in to that temptation. I'm here to tell you it's not too late. Verse 21 
tells us that the idea that Judas would betray Jesus broke Jesus' heart. He was confounded, deeply troubled, it says. Even his act of dipping the bread and sharing it with Judas was a cultural sign of friendship. You might almost see that act of sharing the bread as one final attempt to show Judas that Jesus loves him and is on his side, to give him one more chance to turn from his sin and trust Jesus. Jesus doesn't want anyone, hear this, Jesus doesn't want anyone to perish in our sin and be forever separated from him. And the Bible says today is the day of salvation. So don't let it destroy you. Don't let secret sin rob you of your relationship with Jesus. In just a few moments, we're going to have our uh, prayer team here in the front corners of the room. Uh, Josh and I will be available after the gathering today as well. If you're responding in confession to God, asking him to do as he promised, which is that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Whether you've walked with Jesus for many years, like Judas, or whether you're just reaching out to him for the first time today, I just plead with you, confess your sins to God, turn away from them by faith, and then talk to someone here before you leave. Let us pray with you and celebrate with you that God is at work in your heart. Conviction for sin is evidence of the Spirit of God working in your life. Jesus wants all of your heart. Give him lordship over your life today. Don't don't leave any opportunity for the powers of darkness to exploit and ruin you. Today is the day of salvation. There's a few other types of disciples there with Jesus too, though, so let's spend a moment considering them. Uh, The confidants and the close-ish friends. Jesus had just broken down, right? Verse 21 says he was troubled in his spirit. You can imagine him getting emotional and saying, listen, guys, I'm trying to tell you that one of you is going to betray me. And the disciples are freaked out by that. And they're looking around trying to figure out who it could be. But only two of them have the kind of trust and proximity to Jesus to lean in and ask about it. Peter knows Jesus. He's not afraid to ask the hard questions, despite often missing the point and needing to be corrected. Peter asks anyway. And John is right next to Jesus, keenly aware that Jesus loves him, and he just leans over and is like, hey, who is it? And Jesus answers him. So my question is this, Christians, what type of disciple do you want to be? the one who hears something from the Lord, you read something in the Bible, or maybe you don't read the Bible that much on your own, but someone else reads it on a Sunday or at community group, and it's hard to understand. So you just look around and scratch your head, wondering, what is Jesus talking about? And then moments later, pull out your phone and distract yourself from that uncomfortable feeling of not understanding something. Instead of diving deeper into the Word, leaning up against Jesus and asking Him, Lord, what are you saying? I know you want a relationship with me, Jesus. You died to have a relationship with your people, and I want a relationship with you. And then search the scriptures and labor in prayer until you hear fully 
what he's saying. Hmm, that sounds like hard work, and those Instagram stories aren't going to watch themselves, are they? But listen, there's a room full of disciples in this story who were there. They were sharing the meal, and they didn't ask the question. Do you understand that by taking the Passover with these guys, which was the institution of the Lord's Supper that we celebrate every month together, by doing that with these disciples, Jesus was in essence saying, we're family. You guys are my brothers. This is an aside from the text, but I hope that the next time we take communion together, we can take it that seriously. Not just that we remember and proclaim Jesus' death and resurrection until he comes. Certainly we do that. But it's not just merely a personal thing. We say every month that it's a corporate meal, and I, I worry that the significance of that word corporate gets lost on us. We don't take communion at home by ourselves for expressly this reason, that in sharing that holy meal together, we're following Jesus' example and saying to the gathered church, we are in this together. You're my, my brothers and my sisters. And, and they're saying it back to us as a sign of our assurance of salvation. Yes, brother. Yes, sister. We see the evidence of grace in your life. And you are welcome at this table. Members of Church of the Valley, we have covenanted together to hold one another accountable for living in the way of Jesus. And the communion table is the visible way that that accountability is expressed. As we say to one another, come and eat, brother. Come and drink, sister. We should be thrilled each and every month that we're allowed to approach the table. Let's take it so seriously as to acknowledge the weight of the invitation that it carries with it the local church's continued endorsement and acceptance of our profession of faith. Okay, sorry. Back to the upper room. These disciples, they were in. They're sharing the family meal, but only one of them was there leaning up against Jesus whispering questions to him, so blown away that Jesus would love him, that he doesn't even use his own name in the book that he wrote, but simply refers to himself as a disciple whom Jesus loved. Are you a follower of Jesus? Ask yourself what kind of disciple you are. Are you sitting on the periphery of your relationship with him, often confused by what he says? Or do you know him intimately? Are you enthralled by his presence and affection? Do you long to hear from him morning and night? He's not withholding any good thing from his people. He wants to talk to you, to lean back against you and reveal mysteries of his love and grace. Maybe a, a simple step for us all would be like George Mueller of Bristol, England, who used to read his Bible on his knees. Maybe all of us could assume a posture of prayer when we open the Bible and ask Jesus to speak to us. And then wait, not rush off to the next thing, but wait until we hear from him. Uh, as the band and the prayer teams come forward, uh, I want to invite you to to respond as the Spirit moves in your hearts um, through confession. Confess your sins to God 
Um, the prayer team will be here. You guys come on up. Uh, the prayer team will be uh, in the front edges of the room to guide you if you need help, if you need someone to pray for you. Confess your sins to the Lord. Turn from them. Give your heart fully to Jesus. And, and for those who follow Jesus, I would just encourage you, commit today to lean into the relationship that he offers you, to be more like Peter and John who are willing to ask the question and wait for a response than the people on the periphery who, who hear a word from Jesus, who trust in him, um, but won't just go to him. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, um, for the, the sufficiency of your word, that as your spirit works in our hearts to illuminate this text, you are changing us from one degree of glory to another. You are sanctifying us, calling us uh, to cast off our sin in order to, uh, as, as you by your spirit, turn on the lights in the dark corners of our hearts uh, in order that you might fill them with Jesus. Um, we do pray, Lord, that you would uh, deliver many, even in this room today, from the strongholds of sin that uh, so often make it seem like we have no way out, but to give in to temptation again and again. Lord, would you cut away the, the seared dead parts of our consciences and awaken again, revive in us a desire to please you, restore the joy of our salvations. God, we pray that as we continue to meet and to celebrate that your spirit would be at work mightily among your people. And even as we go out, that we would remember that you love us and you long to have a relationship with us. You speak to us by your spirit through your word. Let us take it and read it. Heed these words and hold them dear. In Jesus' name, amen.